If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks, thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May God add understanding to the reading of his word. All right. So I want to start this morning with a question. What is the normal Christian life? I don't mean to ask that from a sociological perspective where we would survey the church and come up with a descriptive answer to, pe to what people who identify as Christian would usually experience in life. I don't mean that we should look around and look at our neighbors, our friends, look at them and say, well, what does their life look like? I mean to ask, what does God tell us in his word about the quality and the nature of the Christian life? We must always guard ourselves against simply observing our own experiences and making God's word fit them. Instead, we are to be a people who are being shaped and formed by the word of God. And so I ask, what does God tell us in his word about the normal Christian life? To answer this question, I'd like to go through Colossians 3, 1 to 17, and observe what God expects as normal and then uh, look at what this looks like for our lives. In doing so, I think we will find that the normal Christian life is actually supernatural in nature and quality. And so beginning in Colossians 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ. Notice how it doesn't say, if then you will be raised with Christ. Rather, it's if then you have been raised with Christ. It's a past event. It's something that has already occurred. If you don't get this, you will misunderstand the nature of the Christian life completely. The tenses are very important. You have been raised with Christ. 
If you simply make it read, you will be raised with Christ. You will be waiting for something that God has given already. This is meant to shape our lives right now. Eternal life is not something we're waiting for 10, 20, 30, 60, 80 years down the road. It's something we have and experience right now. Eternal life is to know God, the only true God, and to know Jesus, the one whom God has sent. That's John 17, 3. This is something that we have right now. <clears throat> and so listen to Colossians 2, 9 to 15. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, for in him, speaking of Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. <clears throat> and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, he nailed it to the cross. Do you see how the language is, we have been filled in Christ? We were circumcised. We have been buried into death. We have been raised with Christ. This is all past tense, something God has done in us already. This is also the language of Paul in Romans 6 to 8. Romans 6 4 says, We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He continues in 6.12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And, your, and present your members um, as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but you are under grace. Paul continues this line of argument until finally in chapter eight, verses 10 and 11, we come to this beautiful climax. It's if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. <clears throat> For years, I read the will, he will also in that passage as something that will happen at the resurrection one day in the future. But when you look at the whole context, um, you see that it's clearly talking. Paul is talking about not walking according to the flesh, but walking according to the spirit. This is not just a promise about something that will happen after the resurrection, but rather it is the promise of God that he is at work by his Holy Spirit in our lives right now. <clears throat> He's giving us life right now and will continue to give us life even until he has made all things new, even until we, along with the new creation, are no longer groaning under the weight of sin. And so it's a now looking into what is coming ahead. 
And so if the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. What a promise. Do you think of your life like that? Is that normal life for you? And so in the deepest reality there is, the reality of God himself, you have died through the cross of Christ to sin. You have died to trying to find life on your own. You've died to being controlled by your passions and your desires. And instead, you've been raised to new life. And this new life is found in knowing Jesus and doing his will. How you were raised from the dead is significant. You were raised by the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit now lives in you. This is what it means to be a Christian. Christian, do you believe you've died with Christ and have risen again to new life? Do you believe the Holy Spirit lives in you to give you the power to turn away from sin and to walk in the newness of life? So back to Colossians 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. <clears throat> so since God has given us such a marvelous salvation and has risen us with Christ, the result of that is we are to spend our lives seeking the things that are above. The hand, the right hand of God is a, sorry, we are to spend our lives seeking the things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. <clears throat> the right hand of God is a place of great authority. It is where Jesus resides on his throne as the risen savior. It may look to us like Satan rules over the world, that he is working out his destructive plan of trapping people in suffering, in sin, in hopelessness, in death. But we as Christians are to spend our lives realizing that the true state of affairs is that Jesus reigns on his throne in heaven and that he is sovereign over the affairs of the universe. He has revealed to us that he is bringing a new kingdom and this kingdom will not be overcome by darkness. We are ambassadors of this kingdom and in all things we trust that Jesus is working out his good plan in his good timing. And so we with courage, we push back against the darkness. We push back against the deceit and the lies and in doing so we know our labor is not in vain. It's not in vain because Jesus is king and he has overcome. I'm not gonna spend much time going into the specifics about how we are to seek the things that are above um, right at this moment because that's kind of the meat of the passage and that's what we're gonna be getting into momentarily. Um, but for now, what I want us to see is the importance of the fact that our life is hidden in Christ in verse three. <clears throat> It says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our life is hidden, what does this mean? So look at the progression. We've been raised to new life with Christ and we have died to sin, but for now our life is hidden. 
then it continues. Our life will be revealed when we appear with him in glory. It is in the future. We are waiting for this. I think it is imperative that we understand this progression. If we, if we don't see that we've been raised with Christ and that you have the power of the Holy Spirit in you right now, you will not have the courage and the hope necessary to fight sin, to love others, and to remain faithful to Jesus. But if you think you've received life in full already, you will despair and become bitter toward God because he's not giving you a full, healthy, and satisfying life. When disease and failure and poverty or betrayal or hardship come your way, you'll start to doubt God's goodness because you'll ask this question. If he is in control and I've received resurrection life, why does my life still suck so much? What a beautiful rest and freedom it brings when we realize that we have been raised with Christ and yet our lives are hidden. They're hidden with Christ in God. We live in a broken world that is hostile toward God and those who love God. The result is death and pain and suffering and confusion. But it is important to realize that our lives are not aimlessly floating in a nefarious sea of Satan's deceit and circumstances. Rather, our lives are securely hidden with Christ in God. Through faith, we are shielded until the coming of the salvation, which is ready to be revealed in the last time. Surely the cross of Christ proves that God is indeed able to work out all things for the good of those who love him. Even all the malevolent designs of Satan and the most crushing circumstances were not able to overcome God's beloved son. And so now, for those of us who are in Christ, he loves us with that same kind of steadfast and committed love. I don't know if you stopped to think about that. He loves you with the love he loved his son with. That's security, that's safety, that's a life hidden with him. Our life is hidden with Christ in God as we await for, the, for our appearing, when we will appear with him in glory. And so it looks like sin and death and confusion and hardship are ruling the day. But in the end, we have this hope and this confidence that his spirit is working in our lives and that we are hidden in him awaiting um, the consummation of the love that we have already received. In verse five, Paul shifts from these high, massive, beautiful, foundational truths and he zooms into how this plays out in our everyday lives. The normal Christian life is to have a continual and abiding faith in the reality that we've been risen with Christ and even right now, our lives are hidden in him. The correct response to these truths is to give your life to seeking the things that are above and putting to death what is earthly in you. The language of verse five of put to death therefore, it is a violent command. It's to kill until it's dead. We are not to let up, give in, or accept sin as normal. I think that's an important line. I'm gonna say it again. We are not to let up or give in or accept sin as normal. We are not to allow one another to just dwell in sin. We are to, verse five, put to death what is earthly in us. 
And then he gives this list, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So we're just going to take a minute and go through these one at a time. We are to put to death sexual immorality. So love and sexuality are an offshoot of being made in the image of God. This means that love is only truly love is if it is a reflection of the nature and character of God. God has made marriage between one man and one woman, and he has made the standard for relationship in that marriage to be serving the other and honoring the other. God is telling us something of who he is by this design and by this call. Sexual immorality is when we seek to redefine God's design and exercise this gift outside of God's beautiful, life-giving, society-building, God-honoring context. God's design is being systematically attacked in our society right now. I think we need to be careful to guard our own lives and our own doctrine closely. We need to be careful to be creating a counter-narrative for our children so that they can see the beauty of God's wisdom and his design. And finally, I think we just have to be prepared to, to maybe not be liked too much or to experience mockery when we hold these old-fashioned ideas of God's design. They're from the wisdom of God himself. Who are we to change them? Before we move on to the next vice in our list, I want to bring up one more form of sexual immorality um, for a point of consideration. <clears throat> Jesus said adultery is not only a physical act, but it's a heart which lusts. I believe we live in a time and a place where if we're not careful and continually repentant, we will become numb to the normality of sexualized image, images floating past our gaze. We will find that our hearts get stuck in lust or even worse sometimes, just numbed to the point of indifference. Our hearts should be shocked and disgusted by the lies that are floating across our screens all the time. We should be um, disgusted by the lies that are causing many to dress provocatively and treat their sexuality as public display. Our sensibility should be offended when the director of a movie or a video sacrifices a person's dignity for the cheap lust of the viewers. But this isn't unique to the time and place where we live. I want to read a quote by a, a guy named John Christensen, and he was a pastor in the fourth century, so quite a bit of time ago now. He says, long after you've left the theater and everyone has gone away, those images still float before your soul. Their word, conduct, their glances, their walk, their positions, their excitation, their unchaste limbs, and for you, you go home covered with a thousand wounds, but not alone, the whore goes with you. Although not openly and visibly, but in your heart and in your conscience and within you, she kindles the Babylonian furnace in which the peace of your home, the purity of your heart, and the happiness of your marriage will be burned up. <clears throat> So the fight against sexual immorality um, might mean avoiding the theater. It might mean setting filters on your computer. It might mean being wise in how you consume social media. But for all Christians, it's about cultivating a heart attitude that is sickened by the dehumanization of ourselves and others. Pray that God would quicken your conscience once again 
and make you aware of the spiritual realities at work underneath what has become to you just a casual scroll through your phone. Uh, the next one on the list, impurity. Um, this is just a wider perversion than sexual immorality. It's a term that essentially is a wide brush stroke for kind of any kind of moral uncleanness. <clears throat> passion, we are to put to death passion. Um, so to, to be ruled by passion is to be controlled or driven by your appetites. In Philippians 3, Paul speaks of those whose end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is in their shame with mindset on earthly things. This is the kind of passion we are to put to death. This type of passion would take our desires and our wants and the things our bellies want and allow them to define what we will pursue in life. Rather, the call on your life is to submit all your passions and desires to the will of Jesus and have him turn them into a godly zeal, a zeal which desires all things in a God-honoring way, a way that builds your character that is considerate of others, and that brings glory to the design and wisdom of God. <clears throat> evil desire, we are to put to death evil desire. Um, this is a longing for and desiring what is forbidden. Do you think you will find lasting satisfaction by partaking in what God has said is sinful and evil? Put that to death, it will destroy you, it will destroy those around you. Covetousness. This is the greedy desire to have more or the discontented desire to have what another has. This vice alone comes with a specific warning that it is idolatry. Money is so deceptive. It will tell you that you are important. It will tell you that you are safe. It will tell you that you are self-sufficient and that you have the power to get what you want when you want it. It will tell you that if you have enough of it, you will be free but money is a crummy God, and it never fulfills its promises. Flee from using money as a God. Rather, see it as one of the many gifts God gives to his children to supply our temporal needs. <clears throat> to be just and honest in your life is of far more worth than getting lots of money to give away, for obedience is better than sacrifice. Jesus spoke all things into existence. He just doesn't need our stuff. He doesn't need your money. He is the creator of all things. Don't use your money as a, as a way of earning God's favor or feeling important, um, or don't see money as what will bring you fulfillment in life. Rather, use money and, and giving as an expression of love and generosity. Use it as a way to join God in his works of provision and generosity. And so verse 6 continues, on account of these things, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, past tense, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. And the list continues. <clears throat> Anger. This is a chronic attitude of smoldering hatred. It is when unforgiveness has festered in your heart and you have unresolved hate. <clears throat> wrath, we are to put to death wrath. Sometimes this is translated rage. It's acute outbursts of rage. 
God's wrath is slow and just. This kind of wrath comes quick and is from a proud heart. Are you easily offended or angered? Do you snap easily at your wife or your kids or your coworkers? This is serious. God would command you to put it to death until it's dead. Malice, we are to put to death malice. This is the vice at the root of wrath and anger. It is an attitude of the heart which you desire someone to suffer pain, hurt, or to get what's coming to them. When you indulge in malicious thoughts or actions, you are taking the place of God. In your self-righteousness, you are deciding that they don't deserve patience or mercy, but it is time for some anger or wrath. God is just, and he promises wrath for the wicked, but he is also merciful and has sent his son to save sinners. We are to leave retribution and punishment to God and trust him in his timing. We are to put to death all malicious thoughts or actions we have toward others. <clears throat> slander, we are to put to death slander. This is belittling someone by speaking of them in a way that tears them down. But your flesh might be saying, it's true. This person is a liar. This person is a fraud. But Christian love requires that you speak the truth in love. It does not delight in exposing sin so that others can join in mocking and ridiculing that person. Rather, it delights in winning that person to the knowledge of God, to winning that person to repentance and hope. This doesn't in involve gossip. It, gossip can feel so good, it can bolster yourself and make you feel important. But while you're doing this, you don't realize you're actually tearing down someone that God has made in his image. You are tearing down someone that you were meant to build up and serve and declare truth to. Obscene talk. <clears throat> Filthy, shameful, or abrasive language. This is one that even when you're out with the guys, you have no business using humor in such a way that you are mocking or perverting what God in his wisdom has made good. When God speaks, what is shameful or perverse is seen for what it is, and what is true and right and praiseworthy is seen to be truly good. We are to be holy as God as holy. When we enter a room, when we engage in conversation, our presence and our speech should be such that we are steering the conversation to esteem things that are worthy and honorable and to draw the conversation away from things that are perverse and obscene. This is a command that is, is commanded many times, and we are to put to death that part of us that wants to partake in the cheap pleasure of obscene talk. And finally, in verse nine, the last of the list of things that we are to put to death, we are not to lie to one another seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of our creator. <clears throat> and so Satan is the father of lies. Where there are lies, there can be no hope for true relationship. Lives that are built on falsehood or facade can have the illusion of growing quickly or being very tidy on the outside. You can have a pretend form of godliness but when pressure is applied, they crumble. 
God is particularly opposed to human beings who will pretend to be better than they are. Isn't this what Jesus came to and attacked the Pharisees over and over again? That they were pretending to be godly when on the inside they were full of uncleanness and malice and hatred and covetousness. They, they were full of uncleanness. We are to guard our hearts against this. We are not to pretend that we are better than we are. We are to be honest about our sin and we are to be honest about what God says in his word. We are to love the truth and in loving the truth, there's that true relationship and we can build one another up in love. Um, <clears throat> but where we lie, none of that can happen. You will tear yourself away from true relationship and community for as long as you put on falsehood. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we are to put them all away. We are to put off our old self with its practices and we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so do you hear the language of process in these verses? Um, Paul is writing these things to the Colossians because they actually have people in their church. They actually have these people. They, this might be foreign to us, but they've been raised with Christ and they're still struggling with some anger. They actually have one or two in their church maybe, maybe just one or two who've been raised with Christ and are still wrestling with sexual immorality. They actually have people in their church who've been raised with Christ and they find in their hearts this covetous desire for things they don't have. They just feel like their lives just don't have enough. Guys, this is the language of process. The Bible is honest about the reality that we, we still wrestle with these things. But that's the whole point Paul is writing this for, is that we struggle with sin. Let's be honest about it, and let's confess our sin and move forward. We've been given the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead so we don't have to walk in these things any longer. We are to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in us, and we are to be renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. <clears throat> Just a thought about this idea of being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. Um, much of Eastern spirituality, if I understand it right, seems to be built on this idea that we need to empty our mind in order to enter into like a greater universal whole. I read a book called The Book That Made Your World um, by an Indian man named Vishal Mangalwadi, um, and he talks about how in, uh, in the 800 ADs in China, they had piles and piles of books, and they had so many books, they made bookshelves that could rotate and spin around, and they had these in all their monasteries. They even had so many books and the shelves were so heavy, they created this break that they could use to stop the shelves from spinning when they were done with them. Um, but instead of using their books to increase their knowledge or to make the lives of their people better, they were spinning these books in order to meditate, in order to achieve spiritual science, silence, sorry. Um, they had the ingenuity to develop this technology and the ability to read 
but instead of using the books to gain knowledge, they were using their machines to rotate, rotate the bookcases continually and use the senseless sound of the spinning bookcases to achieve spiritual silence. They were not into being renewed by knowledge. They were interested in finding salvation through detachment from created things and from conscious logical thought. <clears throat> and so as you read the Bible, something that is striking to me is that to be a Christian is not at all defined by some mystical detached experience. Being a Christian is to know God. It's to know what he is like, what he loves, what he hates, what grieves him, what brings him joy. To be a Christian is to be renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. We serve a God who revealed himself by his word given to us. And we are to be renewed in knowledge after his image. And so we need to know and love Jesus in accordance with the reality of his being. He is the truth and all else is relative to him. And so verse 11 continues, with regards to being renewed in knowledge, there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, between circumcised and uncircumcised, between barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. This means that there's no distinction where you come from, your nationality, your culture, your socioeconomic status, your past religious status, the reality of it is, is for those of us who are in Christ, we leave all the badges or harms of those things behind to be united to Christ, to form a new body which is unified in him alone. Um, we don't bring our baggage into the church. Jesus redeems us from our baggage um, to be a new people. We don't hold on to past past badges, we let them go. And so because we have been raised with Christ and are being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator, we put these things to death. It doesn't make sense to live in them any longer. We are no longer in bondage to sin, but we are free to be conformed to the nature and character of God as seen in Jesus. Okay, we're two thirds of the way there. We have been raised with Christ, and our lives are hidden with him. Therefore, we should put to death what is earthly in us. But before we think the Christian life is about putting off or putting to death what is wrong, Paul moves on to show what the Christian life, what the substance of it actually starts to look like, what, what being raised with Christ and putting on these new things actually looks like. And so verse 12 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. The word put on then literally means clothe yourselves, therefore. It's putting on your clothing. There are two biblical passages I just want to quick work through um, to get our minds going on this idea of spiritual dress. So the first one is on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Jesus comes and says, Consider the lilies of the field, how they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, 
Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. And so what is Jesus saying when he says God will clothe us like the lilies with clothing that will surpass even Solomon in all his glory? I don't think he was saying that in his providence, the textile industry has advanced to such a degree that now all humans can wear beautiful knitted clothing like we do. That's way better than even Solomon's clothing back in the day. No, he's not, he's not talking about the textile industry at all. Jesus was making a spiritual point, right? That's my attempt at humor, in case you guys are wondering. <laughs> he's making a spiritual point. Um, he was arguing that as God clothes the lilies, as he clothes the lilies as they grow according to his good and beautiful design, how much even more so will he clothe human beings who are growing according to his beautiful God-given design? It's not, a, it's not a comment about clothing. It's the reality that as we submit to Jesus and we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator, that he is dressing us with a dress that is worthy of his presence, that is worthy of his nature, of his character, that, that we will be fit to live in his presence in all of the splendor required to do that. God is dressing us in a new kind of dress here. The second passage is Revelation 19.7, which says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Notice how the bride has made herself ready. This is a volitional effort. The bride has taken interest and, and devoted herself to doing so. But the qualifying reality that enables her to do this is it was granted to her fine linen, bright and pure. It was given to her to wear, given to her to adorn. Jesus loves us and has betrothed us and provided us a wedding dress for the day that he returns to make us his own. That dress that we put on in Revelation is righteous deeds. I don't know if you guys have thought of good works or righteous deeds in that way. Colossians 3.17 takes pains to remind us that as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, it's like Paul thinks we're going to so quickly forget the beginning where we have been reminded that since you've been risen with Christ, that this, the foundation for this whole thing is that God has poured his love out on us, and this is a responsive behavior to his love. It is because of this incredible committed love that Jesus has for us that we clothe ourselves with a compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, long-suffering, love, and peace. A wedding dress means very little unless you have a fiancé. But if you do have a fiancé, it makes all the sense in the world to get a dress, to get it altered, to have it on for that wedding day. Likewise, since we are in Christ and he has promised us his eternal love, does it not make sense that we would spend time and effort to don a dress that will fit the occasion, 
of the consummation of his love for us. I believe this is the spiritual dress that Revelation 19 is talking about, that, that he has given us these robes to wear, and it is our business to get on putting them on. He's provided them. They're right there for you. His spirit lives in you. And so now we get after donning, putting it on for that great day. Okay, so what are we to put on? Compassionate hearts. Hearts that are warm, have sympathy and concern for others. Kindness. Um, just that you'd be nice <laughs> to other people. It's sometimes a wild concept, isn't it? It's not about just being kind to those who are kind to you, though. What makes this a distinctively Christian ethic, what, what makes this hard, you could say, is that we are to be kind to those who are unkind to us. Humility, having a lowly attitude before God and others. <clears throat> if we spend our lives comparing ourselves to our neighbors, we might start to think we're quite something, we're pretty good. But if we spend our life with eyes fixed on the all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful, just, merciful, kind God who is working all things according to his perfection, if you fix your eyes on that God, it will make you humble. You will bow before such a God in humility, and you will not be quick to treat others with contempt, for you will reverence the God who has made those people. Meekness, this is sometimes translated as gentleness. Um, it's a distinct mark of meekness that you act with kindness toward those who are seeking your harm. Do you find in your life you have a pattern of treating others with honor, respect, and dignity? Or are you quick to point out their shortcomings and their failures? Are you the one to look with a condemning glance when they don't do things quite right up to your standard. Um, when they provoke you or seek to harm you, do you feel like you must stand up for yourself and are you quick to have rage or anger? In 1 Peter 2, we find out that Jesus entrusted himself to God, the God who judges justly, and therefore he did not retaliate or feel the need to make sure his enemies got what they deserved. Rather, he died loving his enemies. He was able to demonstrate meekness because he was conscious of the nearness of God. Patience, you are to have self-restraint, a steady response in the face of provocation. And so where the flesh responds with wrath and rage and anger, those who are seeking the things that are above go through the same circumstances and display patience instead. This is the power of God at work in us who believe. Bearing with one another. Oh, this is a good one. I love the honesty of this one, that there might actually be people in the church who annoy you, who are difficult to live beside, who don't do things in a way that stir up feelings of warmth and affection. But the power of the cross and the spirit at work in us is that even in the middle of those trying situations, those trying personalities, that we can even have a love that transcends our personal desires and have a love that comes from the God who made them and loves them, right? Do you see how this all starts to mix together? That we're not driven by our passions or desires, we're not driven by our desires, 
our hearts are starting to be reshaped in knowledge after the image of our creator. <clears throat> Above all, clothe yourselves with love. It's the glue of the whole thing. It's having a concern for others to the point you are willing to lay down your own rights, your energy, and your pride for the, circ for the service and, sorry, your pride to serve and seek the good of the other. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. What a profound litmus test for the heart. If you find you are not thankful, you've been deceived somewhere. Consider what Jesus has done for you. Consider the promises he has made to you. Consider what life would be like without him. We need to repent where we are not thankful and put on thankfulness. Verse 15, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. I love this verse. It gets me excited that each of us as Christians are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly so that we can teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Now, if you're anything like me, you either think you have all the answers for your neighbor or you oscillate between that and feeling like you just have no wisdom at all to offer. I, I find myself in one of those two camps where in pride I think, oh, if they just did that, their life would be so much better. Or in just feeling inadequate and unwise and like I don't have the answers. But the truth is, as Christians, we get to leave those two spots and come to the word of God and let it dwell in us richly so that we have something to offer one another. What do I have to offer you? I've been alive for 30 some years now and have done way too many things wrong to say my life experience has, has given me wisdom. But if I look at the eternal word of God that makes us wise for godliness, all of a sudden I might just have something that can build you up you might just have something that can build me up. Don't think you have nothing to offer because of your past, or don't think you have too much to offer because of your big brain. Humble yourself under the word of God and use the word of God to serve your neighbor, and we will be built up into something that is actually, actually quite beautiful. We will be the church of Jesus Christ in all its splendor when he is through with us. And so, the first part is that we would let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. And there's a direct correlation, I think, between the word of Christ dwelling in us richly and being able to sing to God and with one another. Um, with richness and fullness. It is as, as the word is dwelling in us richly that the expression of that takes on the form and the shape um, of, of actually bringing praise to God. And so, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So in conclusion, I would like to leave you with one last thought and an illustration I heard in a sermon that I found helpful. 
I think that at the center of every unregenerate human heart is a pathological misunderstanding of what freedom is. We think that freedom is when all the shackles of limitation and restriction are removed from our lives and we finally get the liberty of choice. But consider a fish. When is a fish free? A fish is free when it's in the water. On the land, it suffocates. It can no longer do anything that a fish is designed to do. You see, no created thing with limitations has absolute freedom. We have conditional freedom as defined by our nature and by our design. The Christian answer to freedom is that just as the fish is the freest and has the truest choice when it is in the water, so too human beings are freest when they are swimming in the deep pools of having been raised with Christ to be renewed in the image of their creator. And so, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May we, who have been raised together with Christ, put to death sin. And may we clothe ourselves in righteousness as we wait for the day when our Lord returns for his beloved.